This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. another episode of the Out of the Blue podcast. My name is Trish Critic, and today I'm joined by Todd Rice, who is the author of today's article for discussion, Balanced Crystalloids versus Saline in the Intensive Care Unit, the SALT Randomized Trial. Dr. Rice is an assistant professor in the Division of Allergy, Pulmonary, and Critical Care Medicine at Vanderbilt University. Thank you, Dr. Rice, for joining us today. Let's begin by talking about what you learned from the study. So my take is that you demonstrated that, you know, this can be done. That if we change the available crystalloid in ICU and use the electronic medical record to guide decision making and ordering, we can get separation between groups in terms of what's ordered in terms of fluids for a patient. And then you show that you could use the, the medical record to gather data as well. I know people are going to be more excited about talking about is a hyperchloric metabolic acidosis worse, but but is this the big take home? Yeah, so that you're exactly right. That is that was the goal of this um, this project was to make sure that we could we could accomplish um, this through um, a specific electronic order entry, uh, which doesn't force physicians to give the fluid that um, we had the ICU randomized to at that time, but uh, strongly guides them that way and their outs. Uh, but essentially, um, it's directing people to try and give that fluid. And this study was to try and see if that worked and see if by directing people, we could actually change uh, and separate the arms in the two groups. Uh, and then you're right, the the second part of it is this was the first time that we had actually um, captured data electronically from the medical record in a systematic way for research. And um, there were a number of things that we needed to do um, in that data capture. One was to make sure that we were getting the fluid administered amounts correct. Uh, another was the primary endpoint of make 30 um, for, um, we thought, a future study going forward. We were going to electronically calculate that in the medical record from the data dump that we had. Uh, and we needed to just kind of make sure that, that we could do that. Um, and so this, this um, project was set up to kind of make sure that we could both separate arms, direct people to the fluid that, that um, the ICU was getting at that time, and uh, also get the, the data out uh, on the back end. So let's talk about that first part a little bit more. So people are passionate about their resuscitation fluid. I, f- I find that intensivists that I work with are have strong opinions about this. Not everyone, but many do. So I was impressed by how many docs you got to kind of buy in through the guidance that you provided. So my, I guess I'm wondering, A, were you surprised that you got so many people to buy in and B, how'd you do it? Yeah. So I was, uh, I think we were a little surprised, not a ton surprised. We thought we would get some separation. Uh, I think we did better than we thought we would. Um, and I think, um, there's a couple ways that we got buy-in. One is that, um, all of the, the clinicians in the ICU are, were aware of the study, were aware of what the question was, and we had presented kind of both sides of the data to try and show them that uh, despite having a really strong feeling one way or the other, the data suggests that, that we really don't know um, 
what these two fluids might do. Uh, and then the other is that we we gave them in this suggestion process reasonable outs that they could mm -hmm. choose, mm -hmm. um, which I think sort of directed them into the, uh, well, as much as I want to give fluid A, it's not really one of the reasonable doubts. And if it's not one of the reasonable doubts, maybe... I shouldn't give it just because I want to. Um, and so I think by giving them um, objective outs, uh, we sort of better directed when they didn't meet one of those objective outs to giving the fluid that was prescribed by, by what was at the unit at the time. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I'm curious if you wanted to do this across institutions, which I got to assume is where you'd like to go eventually and yeah. make it multiple sites. Right. Do you think you can do that same kind of education you know, here's the lay of the land on the literature. So even though you feel passionately about lactated ringers, maybe there's no evidence to say that's the right choice. Yeah. How do you take that across institutions? Because you kind of knew the people you were working with. Correct. And and you may or may not know that we are currently doing this thing right now in all of our adult ICUs at Vanderbilt. So that the study that we're talking about just occurred in the medical ICU where you know, not only do I know who the people are, but they're my colleagues and, and friends and, and people who, you know, know me and know if I'm a reasonable person and my thoughts and all that. And we've said, I care about helping you. <laughs> yeah, correct. And, and might, might have some alternative motion, ulterior motives to, um, to, you know, trying to play in the sandbox as we'd like to say. Yeah. Um, and we've taken this to all, all five of our adult ICUs now, um, and, uh, did get, some real resistance from other groups that, as you said, um, have a passion or even feel that they know the right answer in their group. Um, and we were, we were concerned about this, but, um, and I think some of it is still because it's all still at my own, um, medical center, even though they're different ICUs, um, showed them data and got buy-in so that people were willing to do it. And it turns out actually, which is fascinating to me, um, that the medical ICU has the worst compliance rates of all of our ICUs. Really? That's yeah. interesting. We could hypothesize on that one for a while. <laughs> right. Well, we th we think, we don't know this, but our hypothesis is that we in medicine, and I'm medicine trained, um, tend to think about things and think we know the answer because we're thinking about things. Um, whereas uh, many of our colleagues... Um, just go with what the suggestion is uh, and are more than willing to go, you know, again, are even more um, swayed or, or agreeable as long as they know it doesn't fit one of these reasonable outs. They're just, they're just willing to go with it. They're going to um, follow the rules. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Okay. So. Like I said, we could wax philosophical on that. And I, <laughs> I think it's interesting and it kind of resonates with me. So um, I'm, I'm encouraged that you could get it to the other ICUs because I think the really interesting thing will be if you take if you use this type of study across multiple institutions, achieving the same degree of buy-in that you know, and maybe it's those guiding choices like is this why you want to opt out? Is this why you want to opt out? Okay, it's none of those things, so don't opt out. Maybe that alone, with a little bit of education, will do it. I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah, I, but I think you're right. I think as we uh, expand this even bro more broadly. Uh, our compliance rate, it may not go down a ton, but I think it will go down some. Yeah. Were there other big logistic challenges to kind of the structure of the study before we talk a little bit about your findings? Yeah. So um, other logistic issues uh, that we ran into um, 
were that uh, there's a lot of carrier fluid uh, given in our ICU. Ah, yeah, uh, yeah. And initially, there, there's no, and there still isn't in our electronic health record a prompt for what that carrier fluid should be. It's always just, you know, if it's this antibiotic, it's always saline, or if it's this, it's always, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, and um, we realized that on the front end pretty early in, and our ICU pharmacist actually sort of went to bat for us on that and got it so that um, the uh, pharmacy would send up carrier fluid of whatever the unit was, was getting at that time, and the nurses would actually look at the carrier fluid and say, does this match my other IV fluid, uh, and try and make it match. Mm, um, interesting. But it wasn't something we were able to do very facile in the electronic health record. Uh, it, that took actual um, people legwork people. Uh, to get yeah. <laughs> Okay, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense to me because whenever you have someone who's hypernatremic or hyponatremic, you suddenly care what things are yeah. mixed in. Yeah. But until then, I personally don't pay a huge amount of attention to it. Exactly. For better or worse. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay. And so, and initially, um, I was of the, of the opining, um, opinion that uh, maybe we shouldn't care that much about carrier fluids. Um, but it turns out, and, and we may talk about this um, some later on, uh, it turns out that um, there's a higher percentage of our patients who get less fluid than I ever would have imagined. Um, and thus, you know, 50 cc's or 100 cc's or a 500 cc bag of carrier fluid um, constitutes a real percentage of the amount of fluid that they got well so. i i think that's exactly where i want to go because i want to talk about the other results because i think i think it's important for for listeners to understand that the big take-home is this is doable so we can scale it and do more studies this way right but i also think people are interested in like what did you find in terms of when you did get separation did it change outcomes so the first thing that struck me as really interesting is exactly what you just said the median amount of fluid given over the seven days was really pretty low and a lot of people didn't get much fluid at all because you were taking all comers correct so did that surprise you i mean it, I... It, yeah it did it did uh, especially given the fact that um this was a medical icu um you know you could argue if this was a cardiovascular icu patients are coming in with heart failure maybe those mm -hmm. patients specifically are not given fluid um but this was a medical icu where you know we feel like at least we're giving our patients a fair amount of fluid uh and you know we often say what we think we do and what we actually do are usually are quite different uh and we kind of showed that when we actually had the data uh there's almost a third of our patients who essentially don't really get fluid. Um, and um, that is part of the reason that the average amount of fluid is between two and three liters um, that's given is because there's a large number that are getting, you, you know, even a liter or less of fluid during their ICU stay. Yeah. And I think, I mean, my opinion in reading this was that that has some bearing on you're not showing a difference between the two arms. And, and you allude to that in some of your analysis of outcomes related to volume received. Um, it, it makes me want to ask the question, would this look different? Would your outcomes look different if you had focused on people who got, you know, more resuscitated or had shock or got a lot of volume, um, as opposed to just everybody who came to the ICU? And I understand logistically why you might do that, but, um, for the future or maybe in hindsight, or I don't know, I just thinking about that, would it be more valuable to think about people who get a lot of fluid? i.e. Is, is it the volume and the 
the, and maybe the rapidity of getting the volume, i.e. if you're there for a really long time, you get a lot of volume, maybe that's not as big a deal as you get eight liters of something. That's going to drive the differences. So your thoughts on that? And I know the paper is not going to answer that, but I'm curious your thoughts. Um, I, I think I think there's a lot of merit in that. Um, when we talked about doing these, this study um, and doing the fluid part of this study, we talked about could we try and identify in the front end do individual randomization with patients that we thought were going to get a lot of fluid and um, randomize them and uh, give them a lot of fluid. And it turns out, as you've alluded to, that there's some um, difficulties in doing that. One is a identifying the patients that we end up giving a lot of fluid. We can do it with the very, very obvious ones, the, the you know, patient who's having hemorrhagic shock and you know you're going to resuscitate them. Um, but um, it turns out that some patients who come into uh, the ICUs and you think, I'm not going to give this patient very much fluid, end up hypotensive in the next morning and get a lot of fluid or, or get a lot of fluid because, you know, they have something that occurs and we're trying to, you know, give them fluid for whatever reason. So it is hard to predict and uh, it's hard to, um, to um, um, maintain the clean aspects of the trial um, in those patients with the individual randomization. And what I mean by that is, is that, that uh, part of the reason that we liked this way of doing the study was uh, our pharmacy in the months that are lactated ringers or plasma light months, the balanced fluids months, uh, will only send that fluid to our Pixis, to our medicine dispenser in the ICU. So when I'm in the room and the patient has a little bit of hypotension and I say to the nurse, let's just give them a liter of fluid, they, they really only have one option and that's whatever the unit's randomized to at that time. They don't have to go find the right fluid for that patient with the randomization um, and get it right, you know, and do all that sort of thing. We can get the other fluid if we want it. Uh, it comes through the order system, and the pharmacy is more than happy to send it up. But uh, in general, um, in these generic, just give some fluid type orders, the patient's getting the fluid that their the unit is randomized to for that month. Um, and so that's you know one of the advantages of doing it this way. As you've brought up, the disadvantages are that you get a number of patients in the ICU who uh, never really get fluid. Um, and so they're included because they're in the unit at that time, um, but they really didn't get fluid um, or enough fluid that we think it could have an effect. You can see from the from from the kind of post hoc analyses we did in the in the uh, in the trial that there were two hypotheses going in of what may um, interact with maybe the interaction and the effect. One was how much fluid you got or a dose type respect uh, interaction. The other was your risk, uh, and if you had a higher risk of, you know, having make 30, which is major adverse kidney events, it includes death, new, new dialysis, or doubling of your creatinine. So if you were at a higher risk of that, then maybe those were the patients that even a little bit of fluid, um, you know, was, uh, was a little bit of chloride fluid was bad for. Um, and we tried to evaluate both of those. And if, uh, you know, again, it's, it's a little bit limited by our design and our analyses, but if you believe the analyses that suggests that dose is a much bigger effect than your baseline risk of, of getting the outcome. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that that does seem like a good hypothesis to, to test moving forward. So I'm curious then is the solution to study this across a much larger population with an a priori statement that you're going to look at those people who get a higher dose and see 
I, I don't know. Yeah. Is that where you go? Uh, you you may have like been eavesdropping on our uh, <laughs> on our uh, our group sessions where we talked about next steps in this. Um, yeah, I think there are two two paths if you believe that figure um, in the um, in the manuscript, which I think is figure four of the the dose. Um, and one is then you either have to go find the patients exclusively that are going to get the big dose. Or as you alluded to, if we're going to continue to do it in the the study setup that we're doing it now, um, we're going to have to enlo enroll a large enough overall population that we have a substantial number of patients who got that dose and um, do some sort of additional analyses in that group that got that dose um, to see if that's where the effect is. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a plausible strategy. I think the numbers will be challenging, but it I, I think it's an interesting model. I think it's interesting and I like it. And I like, I do actually, the cleanness of it is great. Like this is what we have. We're grabbing it. We're giving it to you. Um, tangential to that for one second, just cause I was intrigued by when I was reading, you gave the option of a balanced crystalloid being either LR or plasmolite. Correct. That being said, it seems as if nobody really chose plasmolite. <laughs> <laughs> the vast majority of people picked LR. Yeah. So I'm curious why you did both and didn't just go with one or the other, um, specifically LR. And if that's been different as you've gone to your other ICUs, not that you've published that yet, but I'm just curious. Yeah. Um, so we did both because we thought it opened up some options. Um, well, l let me take a step back. Um, we, we didn't we didn't have any um, real, real strong data that suggested that one of either LR or plasmalite was better than the other. And by doing both of them, um, we thought it opened up um, some additional options. So as you uh, may know, LR has a little bit more potassium in it. Mm -hmm. uh, Plasmalite has some magnesium in it. Um, and if people were worried, for example, about hyperkalemia, they might choose plasmalite instead of um, lactated ringers because of the potassium difference, those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, we People ended up using LR the whole time um, simply because that was the medical bias. Um, LR was something that they were at least had seen before and had used <laughs> maybe a couple times before. Yep. And plasmalite was, you know, this sort of, uh, wait, what is that? Crazy um, fluid that yeah, anesthesiologists exactly. use. Yeah, That's exactly right. But, you, <laughs> but you're exactly right. As we go to our other ICU, um, and interestingly, the ICUs tend to be one balanced fluid specific over the other. Uh, and so like our neuro unit, essentially in the balanced fluids months, uh, uses almost 100% plasma light. I was uh, curious about that. Yeah, that, yeah. that resonates. Yeah. Yeah, they use almost no lactated ringers. Okay. Um, and so it's very, very, very ICU dependent, which as you commented on earlier, I think has more to do with dogma and strong beliefs than it does with any data uh, that I know of that suggests one is better or worse than the other. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. <laughs> but I think it is part of our culture, right? I mean, it's it's interesting. It's there. It's here at the University of Washington. It's wherever. Um, okay, so let's assume that I, you, you proved you can do this. You want to do it on a larger scale. Um, one of the things that I found interesting, and I wanted you to just talk to me about a little bit, is how do you consent? How does consent work for a study like this? Yeah, good question. Um, and so this is a question that we've gotten a fair amount um, because our IRB uh, gave us a waiver of consent for this study, um, meaning that we actually didn't um, didn't get consent from these uh, participants. 
outside of uh, there's a general consent when they come into Vanderbilt that says um, this is a teaching hospital and a learning hospital and there's a learning environment and we're always doing things to try and better understand how we treat patients but nothing specific uh, in that to this study okay People have asked um, how that happened, how could your IRB have done that, um, is it allowed, and those sorts of questions. So in order to get a waiver, you have to. there are four general things that you have to um, kind of demonstrate or the study has to be um, eligible by, by meeting these four criteria. Um, two of them um, are, um, are not that hard, one of which is it can't affect the rights of the patient, which um, studies in general don't. We don't take away their rights. Um, and then the other is, and this is actually where we've started um, wondering if we should we should maybe alter what we do a little bit. The other is, is that you need to provide the participants with pertinent information after the study is completed um, with no um, definition of what pertinent information means. Our IRB has always considered that to be information that would be applicable to care continuing after the study was over. So the example that I like to use is genetic studies, where you found out you're a, you're a carrier of a of a of a allele that you know should make you do something different, should get mammograms more frequently, or something like that. And we found that out in the study, and we should let you know, even though we found it out with a waiver of consent. But um, maybe the, the culture on that is changing some to maybe it's just letting people know that, um, that this was going on while you were in the ICU and um, you were part of sort of this learning environment and us trying to figure out what the best way to care for patients was. The other two criteria, which are the ones that we spent some time discussing with our IRB, is that it has to be minimal risk. Um, and people view minimal risk as differently, but our IRB says that if it's stuff that happens in the everyday care of a patient while they're in the ICU anyway, um, that would qualify as minimal risk. So we showed them that both lactated ringers or plasma light, depending on which ICU you were in, and uh, normal saline were used in the routine care of patients, and that the decision to use it um, wasn't really based on a ton of, of um, hard science and was more kind of a clinician's decision. And, and I think this is important, that if a clinician felt that they really needed to use one or the other, they still could do that in the study, even if it wasn't the randomization one. Um, as you can imagine, IRBs don't like it if you force a clinician to do something that they think is wrong. Um, and that, those outs that we had allowed people, if they really thought that it was wrong to give normal saline, they could give balanced fluids. And then the other part, the other, the last one, uh, sorry, I've been long winded here, but the last no. one is that, um, getting consent has to be, has to not be practicable, uh, again, with no definition of what practicable means. Um, and so in discussion with them, the non-practicability of getting the, the consent in our study was, um, that we were only going to send up the fluid that the study was randomized to and the, um, how do you get consent for that patient that's out that uh, doesn't have any family members and needs fluid right away? Um, and um, they agreed that they thought that that met. And so they gave us a waiver, a waiver of consent. It does make the question in the study a little bit different. Um, so, you know, we think of studies as saying, should I give this patient, you know, this fluid? And in reality, this study is almost more of a question of should I just change what my routine fluid is in my ICU is that good for my patients um, instead of should I find the patient that I think I'm going to give eight liters of fluid to and instead of giving them saline give them balanced fluids um, 
and it's a nuance, um, but um, we recognize that if somebody says, well, you didn't really study whether this fluid was, was good for this patient, we would say, no, I think that's right. We studied whether or not the default fluid for an ICU was better for the patients in that ICU. For uh, the population, it, yeah, yeah. If it was one fluid versus a different fluid. It's interesting. I think, again, um, as, as you would want to try to expand to other venues, those yeah. conversations could be challenging. Not that yeah. every IRB wouldn't necessarily eventually buy in, but um, I think all your justification makes sense to me. Yeah. I also think that members of IRBs ask tough questions. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, um, I actually am the uh, um, part of our IRB here and have been part of our IRB and actually have some federal funding to study IRBs and that. So obviously oh, cool. I'm savvy with IRBs and that, that helps in these discussions and helps me understand the regs. But I know from that that there are IRBs that think that uh, they interpret minimal risk as being something that occurs in the everyday life of a healthy person, and therefore nothing in the ICU could ever be minimal risk because they're not healthy people. Uh, so that's that's an interpretation of the regulations that some um, some institutions IRBs have. And the other thing is is that some institutional IRBs think that if you randomize it all, that means it can't be minimal risk because. Um, you've directed what care the patient's going to get, even if you're randomizing to two things that are part of routine care in general. Um, the and, fact that you did that. Right. The fact that you essentially randomized and then, you know, directed the care uh, makes it greater than minimal risk. And I think the nation uh, and the regulatory part of the United States is still working through, you know, how to navigate that terrain. Because uh, we, because you're right, we really, in in different institutions and in different IRBs, we really do look at them differently, um, and we probably should have a better standard of, of how we look at this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting question in and of itself. Yeah. Should there be more uniformity in how we look at it? Yeah. Um, let me finish by asking you, I've, I've hypothesized for you multiple times where you yeah. should go from here, but let me ask you, where are you going from here? You already talked about the multiple ICUs at your hospital. Yeah. Beyond so, that, where are you going? Yeah, that would be great if we could do it beyond that. So we are currently doing a study in all of our ICUs um, here at Vanderbilt. Um, it uh, will go for about a year and a half, uh, and by the end of it, we'll have someplace in the range of twelve to 14,000 patients that are enrolled. Um, the nice part for us is that our emergency department actually got really, really excited about this. And so our emergency department is actually doing a very similar study uh, for patients that come into the emergency department and get admitted to the hospital, um, not necessarily the ICU. Um, and that, going over about the same time period, will have, I think, probably 20,000 patients. So we get numbers um, by doing studies kind of within the healthcare system and what we've called the learning healthcare environment, uh, where you, you use the environment of providing healthcare and try and learn from it. Um, it, it created a kind of an interesting dilemma with this study that, that we had at the, um, at the, at the submission stage. And that was a number of people said, you can't call it a pilot study if it has a thousand patients in it. Um, and we said, but it really was a pilot study. Yeah. We really, I mean, you, you hit it right on the head, right? Our goal was to make sure that we could do this. Yeah. Um, and that was the, that was how we set out with this, regardless of the fact that over the four months we got almost a thousand patients, uh, people said, but a thousand patients isn't a pilot study. And so we had these interesting discussions about, <laughs> you know, could we call this a pilot study or not? Um, but, but 
this sort of using the healthcare environment to learn and do these sorts of studies allows you to get large numbers. And the hope is, is that by getting those large numbers, we'll be able to see a real signal for um, different disease states. Like for example, does sepsis matter? Does brain injury matter? Does heart failure matter? And uh, as you alluded to earlier for different volumes or, or what I call dose uh, yeah. of the, of the fluids. All right. Well, I look forward to reading more about this. It's, obviously still a topic of much debate amongst our intensivists yeah. as it sounds like it is amongst yours yeah definitely and uh the more we could be anchored in some <laughs> data that would be great yeah um i really appreciate the time you spent with me today and i think our listeners will appreciate it as well so thank you and um i look forward to the next piece awesome thank you to read the article discussed in this podcast, please visit the podcast homepage at www.atsjournals.org. To listen to more episodes of Out of the Blue, visit our page on iTunes or Google Play. You can also subscribe to stay updated whenever new episodes are available. Thanks for listening and have a great day.